0: I am Sarah-Jane Case and this is Enneagram and Coffee. Hello friends, happy Friday. I hope your day is treating you well. Today, we are talking with Megan Griffith, a neurodivergent life coach who specializes in the combination of autism and ADHD, neurodivergent shame, and executive dysfunction. She loves helping people learn to accept their brains as they are and identify their strengths while also honoring their limitations. She says when she's not working with clients, you can typically find her taking some kind of personality test, which you know we love, and dyeing her hair. Megan, welcome to
1: the show. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much for having me. This is seriously like surreal. I love your podcast so much and I'm honored to be here.
0: Oh, I'm so excited. I get questions all the time about how does neurodivergence play in with the Enneagram? You know, what does it look like? So I know people at home are excited to have you here. Um, I decided today, starting with you, that we're going to start every episode with a small joy. Um, So you share with me something that's bringing you joy today, and I'll share with you something that's bringing me joy.
1: Okay. Um, Sushi. I got such a craving for sushi this afternoon, so I drove to the store to get some, and I like was singing a sushi song to myself the whole time. Like, (laughs) oh my goodness, so much joy.
0: Oh my gosh. Okay, well, what's your role? What do you like to get?
1: Um. Okay. So today I got just a Philadelphia roll with like spicy mayo on top. Like very plain, Yum. but very good.
0: Yeah, Philadelphia is classic though. Like I feel like it's underrated. Hmm. Hmm. Um. I love that. I love the sushi song. Also, did you go to the grocery store? Because I feel like grocery store sushi hits different. Like it's grocery like
1: grocery store sushi is delicious. It is. <laughs> it's so much. It's safer.
0: under appreciated yes it's so much cheaper but it also just like for me eating it out of that little container mm, it hits it for me oh yeah absolutely good one um I'm gonna say for my small joy today I'm like looking around like I didn't prepare this question like I should have thought of this (laughs) ahead of time oh I have this little plant on my desk and it it like droops down when it's thirsty and then it just perks right back up when I give it water and I wish every plant would do that
1: (laughs) Just be
0: like, "Hey, I'm thirsty," and all of a sudden we're we're good. Give me some water, and we're good to go. <laughs> communicative, communicative. Yes, yeah. yes. It's a mutual relationship. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, see Well, tell us a little bit about the work that you do and how you got into it.
1: Okay, so I'm a neurodivergent life coach, and basically, I work with other neurodivergent people on a peer-to-peer basis. So it's not the professional patient relationship of therapy, which love therapy, totally into it, but this is different. Um, and I offer more of like, hey, I am autistic, and I have ADHD, and um, I have a lot of experience researching other types of neurodivergence, and I would love to work with you on some of those things that I've experienced that you're probably experiencing and we can just kind of vibe together and do some healing work
0: <laughs> yeah um man so when you say do some healing work what does that look like I, I'm thinking about my husband at home who he has ADhD and he often just feels very like isolated and like the world's not built for him you know it's like not Our society is not made for it. So, like, I can understand the need to
1: have support. Can we talk about what that support can sometimes look like? Oh, my goodness. Absolutely. Okay. So, (laughs) with me, uh, my coaching operates hugely on validation. Um, Mm -hmm. That's a major part of what we do because, like you said, the world really isn't built for neurodivergent people of any kind. Um, And so, that's really what we start with is just like, hey, your brain makes sense. And mm. that alone like, will blow people's minds and make them feel so seen and held and heard. And so that's really where we start. And then the healing work from there kind of goes into it's okay to struggle. Like, Struggling is human. You just happen to struggle in a very stigmatized way. And that stigma is wrong. You're not wrong. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah. Can we talk about like, okay, for people at home who are like, maybe not neurodivergent and they don't know what does struggling look like and and why isn't it societally accepted.
1: Okay, absolutely. So, struggling with neurodivergence is going to look different based on what type of neurodivergence you experience. So, like there are tic disorders, there's bipolar disorder, there's personality disorders, uh all of that. But if we want to talk about autism and ADHD specifically because that's my experience, um I can get into some more specifics of that. Um sure. So ADHD is highly, highly stigmatized for our messiness and our forgetfulness. Um, We really struggle to be on time to things, to show up to things at all, uh, to keep our houses or rooms clean. And... Cleaning is very, very moralized in our society. And it's very much a sign of being a good person if you can keep your space clean and a bad person if you can't. Um, or it's like you're not trying, which is just almost never the case with people with ADHD. We're always trying so hard. Um And then we often get labeled as flaky uh, for not showing Mm -hmm. up to stuff or being late or forgetting birthdays and stuff like that.
0: Mm -hmm. So how in your dream life, like in your dream world, what would change in like in society and like the larger conversation?
1: Well, so here's the reason that so many people refer to ADHD and autism as disabilities, because even if we could make society perfect, there are aspects that would still be disabling <laughs> but mm-hmm. if if we could perfect society and make it this wonderfully inclusive place i think i think we would learn about neurodivergence um you know, at a young age, like, and there's more and more children's Mm -hmm. books coming out about like, oh, uh, Tommy is autistic. And you know, like, or my mommy is autistic. That's a new one that I saw Mm -hmm. recently. Um, And I think that would be great. And I think um, having like windows of time where something can start, I think would be helpful Mm -hmm. for a lot of ADHDers, like, instead of, oh, the movie starts at 930, like, saying, like, oh, you have to arrive somewhere between... 915 and 945. Like I think that mm-hmm. oh my goodness that would change everything for me, <laughs> which I guess I could <laughs> do that myself, but it's helpful when other people implement those things for you because mm-hmm. it's less brain power that you have to exert to accommodate yourself. It's nice when mm-hmm. other people can accommodate you. Mm-hmm.
0: That's really powerful phrase like that it's less brain power that you have to exert accommodating yourself it's nice when other people can accommodate you. Like, oh my gosh. Like as someone who's partnered to someone with ADHD, it's like very helpful to think of it in that way because it is like he does like we, a lot of like our like partnership is in like, well, how do you accommodate yourself? How do you support yourself? Because so much is done against what comes naturally.
1: Right. Right.
0: (laughs) Um, Okay. So, For one of the things that we you've talked about, and I know you do a lot of work with and something that I've seen a lot is the shame that can get carried. And as we talk about stigmatization, I think it really like brings up this sense of like shame. And, you know, I know rejection sensitivity is a thing with ADHD. Like, how can that? Yeah. Can we just talk a little bit about that?
1: Oh, my goodness. Yes, I could talk about shame all day. Uh, <laughs> Same. I, I was once told by a therapist that I have a shame-based personality. So I don't mm. know what that means, but <laughs> I'm very intimately so familiar fun. with shame. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So a lot of neurodivergent people carry a lot of shame for being different, for struggling in stigmatized ways, for having Mm. objective limitations uh, that cannot magically be overcome, you know? Um, I think... There's a lot of shame, actually, that comes from the superpower narrative, uh, which I'm not a huge fan of. It's this idea that being neurodivergent is like some sort of secret superpower. And if you can just figure out how to hack your brain or harness you know, your unique gifts, then it can be a superpower. And I'm not saying that there aren't positive qualities of being neurodivergent. I personally mm-hmm. love a lot of the way my brain works now, but I certainly didn't for a long time because... Mm-hmm uh society did not, did not see me as the person I was supposed to be. I was seen as mm. a failed neurotypical, not Ooh. a successful neurodivergent.
0: Oh, <laughs> okay. That's good. That's deep.
1: So I think there's a lot of shame that goes into just growing up neurodivergent, especially unaccepted mm-hmm. neurodivergence. So here's this thing. A lot of people – um, are getting diagnosed later in life with uh, different forms of neurodivergence. And I think that's beautiful and amazing. Um, and there's a lot of like grief that often comes along with it because people are like, if I was only noticed sooner, like my whole life could have been different. Mm-hmm. And I guess I like to point out that that's not always necessarily the case. Like a lot of our early diagnosed kin. Um, were not accepted. They were diagnosed, mm. but they still weren't accepted for who they were. So I like to talk about early acceptance because that can be life-changing. If you are accepted for who you are from a young age, like who, <laughs> that changes everything. But when you're not, uh you do start to carry a lot of shame with you. Like what
0: like from like acceptance from parental figures, authority figures, is that
1: what we mean? I think that's probably the most powerful source, yes, but I think acceptance can come from other areas as well. Like um, I had a lot of teachers who they never pegged me as ADHD, but like I would get sort of scolded for being unorthodox or I would get sort of (laughs) teased by the teacher for doing things in such a strange way. Um, Mm -hmm. but then I had some teachers who were like, oh my goodness, I love having Megan in my class. She asks the questions I can see written on everyone else's faces. Like, she's not afraid to just like ask because I'm not, because if I don't understand, I'm going to ask a question. Mm -hmm. Um, so it, I think acceptance from teachers and coaches can be really huge, especially for people who maybe aren't getting that acceptance at home. Um, acceptance from siblings can be really powerful, Um, And even acceptance from other community leaders, whether that's, you know, your local like volunteering group or your local church or whatever that might be.
0: Do you find like that in your experience that authority figures sometimes like assume ill intent? for, okay. <laughs>
1: yeah, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I think they do. Um, So here's the thing. For a very long time, autism and ADHD especially were thought of as behavioral disorders. So it was thought of as the behavior is the problem. So all we have to do is fix the behavior. Now we know that that's not true. Now we know that these are neurodevelopmental disabilities and they affect the way we process the world. And that processing difference results in different behavior. So if all you're focusing on is the behavior, you're going to assume ill intent because it's like, dear God, who acts like this on purpose? And it's like, well, I'm not actually. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> because if you it, – it, and I think that's the stigma, right? It's like the assumption that like these behaviors are just being done at you, you mm-hmm. know, versus like someone doing their best to move through a world that's not suited to their brain chemistry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, um, oh, yeah. Correct me if I ever use the wrong language. <laughs> like, <laughs> no,
1: Sophie, you're doing great. <laughs> okay. I think a lot of um, adults in authority positions um, are not as emotionally mature as they would like to be or as we would like them to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and they still have a sort of egocentric view of the world that's sort of teenagery, where it's like, if it's not happening to me, um, then it must not be be real or you know what I mean? Like if if Mm -hmm. I don't experience it, then it's not legit (laughs) and I can't understand it. And so there's a little bit of emotional immaturity that is just baked into our culture. We don't really focus a lot on adult growth. It's all about training children to be good employees. And that doesn't lead to very high emotional intelligence. Dang. Okay.
0: Yeah. That's that adds up. And and like Training kids to be good employees looks like what is
1: yeah, like what does that look like? It looks like prizing productivity over well being, which I know you talk about a lot. Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) it looks like um, defining your worth by your ability to contribute to society in a financial way as opposed to all of the other amazing ways you probably contribute. Um, it looks like frankly eugenics you know the idea that people who can't contribute financially are not worthwhile um yeah that's that's what that looks like yeah
0: dang um I'm gonna switch this over a little bit into I'm curious about have you noticed a an alignment or kind of a pattern with neurodivergence and perfectionism
1: oh for sure yes okay <laughs> what, can I to, oh go ahead go ahead oh no go Um, it kind of goes back to, um, what I was saying about being perceived as a failed neurotypical. Mm -hmm. And so instead we don't want to be perceived as a failed neurotypical. So instead of trying to be as ourselves as possible, we diverge from that path and we go down the path of trying to appear as neurotypical as possible, which leads to a lot of perfectionism.
0: Okay. Yes. Can we talk about these two paths? So (laughs) let's say like, Lil Jill is like coming in, she's, you know, neurodivergent and the path of Jill taking, trying to look neurotypical. What is the experience for Jill in that? We don't have to use Jill. Yeah,
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so it's a lot of masking. Uh, masking is, so I've had some people, um, online who are a little bit confused about what masking is. They're like, well, everybody acts a little different around different people, which is so true. Um, (laughs) but that's called contextualized behavior. That's where context affects how you behave. And everybody does that to a certain extent. Neurodivergent people We mask, which Mm -hmm. I I recently read this book called The Drama of the Gifted Child. Um, I forget the author, um, Alice Miller, I think. Um, And she was talking about a client who described his experience growing up as if he was living in a glass house. And... It was like there was nowhere to hide the parts of himself that weren't accepted. He wasn't allowed to like bring them out in secret at any point. He couldn't just behave differently. He had to essentially kill parts of himself and Mm. just get rid of them entirely. That is masking. That is Mm -hmm. what we do. And so for Jill, if she's trying to behave as a neurotypical, um, that perfectionism is going to start to take over in the sense of like, I can't do what feels natural. So instead, I'm constantly looking to others for approval, for external validation, for evidence that I am doing Mm. the right thing and just completely destroying your internal sense of intuition.
0: Mm. So it's almost like you're losing touch with your own sense of validation, like your own sense of What's good for me? What's wrong for me? Because you are looking to other people as evidence that you are okay.
1: Absolutely.
0: Okay. And then, what can it look like if we move? If we accept? Okay, like I am neurodivergent. I am going to be different. What is that? What is that experience like?
1: It's magical and also really <laughs> difficult. Um, mm-hmm. It's both. <laughs> um, so I think. Accepting yourself as neurodivergent, it's a really wild ride. It, it feels amazing at first because it always feels amazing to feel seen. Um, but there's also usually a sense of imposter syndrome where it's like, no, I just want to feel special. Like that's just the four in me, (laughs) you know? (laughs) Um, so there's some doubt that goes along with it. And then there's also the grief of, you know, if only I'd been accepted sooner, you know, my whole life might be different. And so there's lots of feelings that come with it, but once you start to accept who you really are and, make a like commitment to showing up as that person, um, even when other people don't approve, it's really freeing. Mm. <laughs> it, I mean, and it's not always possible. I do think we should talk about the um, dangers of unmasking, um, especially mm-hmm. for our um, neurodivergent people of color in our communities, because mm-hmm. uh, unmasking can lead to very real bodily harm. Um, mm-hmm. So- like I want to say 50% of people who are killed by the police are disabled. Um, So it's, it's huge. And so being visibly disabled can be very risky for some people in our community, especially. So um, I just want to throw that out there, make sure we're acknowledging that unmasking isn't like a Mm -hmm. magic pill that's going to fix everything. You know, it's not always possible, unfortunately. Um, But when possible, if you can find safe people to unmask around, it feels like coming home after a years long vacation yeah and it's just like oh this is where i'm meant to be
0: mm. and i i wonder if because if I, I what we're talking about too it's like okay we have one our capitalistic society right that we live in which requires us to operate under certain conditions right we're trained from a young age that you're supposed to look a certain way act a certain way show up a certain way. Um and then we have, you know, our f- familial connections like all of these systems in our life that are telling us like how we're supposed to be and oftentimes that's neurotypical. Um if not all the time, right? And so when we're experiencing that and then we're we're stepping into the space of I want to really honor the fact that this is happening to me. This is the experience that I'm having. My brain is Like this, you know, is there, is there like a, you mentioned grief of like not having early acceptance, but is there a grief in just kind of like owning this new way? Does that make sense? Like, like saying like okay i'm just gonna say i i feel like when i talk to my husband about it it's sometimes it's like yes this is real and and in my mind i'm like the more we talk about it the more free you'll be and for him he's like la 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 la. i don't want to you know just stop talking about it let's pretend like it doesn't exist because i think there's some sense of like still wanting to be neurotypical and like Mm. holding so like is there pain in that doesn't
1: there's absolutely pain in the forever aspect of neurodivergence. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of us really struggle with like, like. of course I can accept myself as long as, you know, eventually I'll get better, right? <laughs> and it's like, get better. oh, no, I won't get better because I don't need to get better. But at the same time, my struggles are so real and so painful. And there is a part of me that still wants to get better, even though that's really not The goal with disability. It's more of accepting and honoring your limitations and building a life that feels fulfilling, which Mm -hmm. is just hard when you realize, okay, this giant boulder in the middle of the road is going to be here for the rest of my life.
0: Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's the case, right, for all of us to some degree of like, the, this is the world. These are my circumstances. I have something that I want, uh, a way I want to live, a way I want to be, and maybe my circumstances and my like idealism don't line up. And we have to like do the grief, and then we have to like problem solve it. Um, but I'm curious, like for you with people who are neurodivergent, like you talk a lot about like how do we identify strengths and honor our limitations with, at the same time, and And I'm curious about how do we honor our limitations without shame, without turning that toward ourselves?
1: Um, that is such a good question. Um, It's, it's one that has taken me a long time to sort of sift through. I think for me personally, the way that I honor my limitations without shaming myself is I allow myself to feel that shame at first, because that's mm-hmm. my initial reaction. And if I deny it, I'm just pushing it down and it'll come back later. So instead mm-hmm. I let it bubble up. And I'm like, okay, um, but that shame doesn't make sense, though, because Mm. I would never shame someone else for struggling with like a physical disability, you know, but just because mine is mental, all of a sudden I'm a horrible person. Like, come on, that doesn't make sense. And so like first I get my brain on board, then I start getting my heart on board because let's let's be honest, a lot of times there's a disconnect there (laughs) where you might know (laughs) something, but it doesn't mean you feel it. Um, Mm -hmm. So that's when I start doing like EFT tapping, that's a really big tool Mm -hmm. for me. So for people listening who don't know what that is, EFT stands for emotional freedom techniques. And it's where you like tap really specific spots on your body while talking yourself through a difficult emotion. And that's how I process a lot of stuff (laughs) because it Mm -hmm. engages the parasympathetic nervous system. It helps connect your brain and your heart. And it's just really effective in my opinion.
0: (laughs) That's I also love EFT tapping. I have um CPTSD and I um I get overstimulated really easily and so I can just do some tapping and it kind of yeah, like it brings me back down and brings me back into the moment. I'm glad you talked about that. <laughs> um I have one more question and about um one of I and and my husband is okay with me talking about this. I wouldn't like bring him up so much if he was like not. But one of his things, right, with work is, like, I have to have that freak out. I have to have that moment where, like, I think all is lost. All hope is lost. and panicking. There's no hope. Everything's going to – like, nothing will ever work out. And then there's that moment of, like, relief once he goes to, like, the pits of despair. And he's a, you know, he's a writer, so it's, like, his writing process is almost, like, going to the pits of despair and then seeing the other side of it. One, is that is that kind of common for neurodivergent people to kind of have that sense of like panic around a deadline? And then is there a, be- a way to move through that that feels more self-supportive?
1: Mm, I love this. Okay, so first I want to say that I absolutely relate to this feeling, um, especially the feeling of relief. I think Mm -hmm. a lot of neurodivergent people were not allowed to feel negative emotions um, because we were told that our rejection sensitivity or our overstimulation or whatever was excessive. It was too much. It was incorrect. And Mm -hmm. so we sort of shut that part down for a long time. So every time we freak out and we reach this pit of despair, there is a sense of relief like, oh, I'm allowed to feel this. Thank goodness. So I just want to validate his feelings there for sure. Um, and then when it comes to that panic around deadlines, um, I do think that that's very natural, especially for ADHDers because, um, our nervous systems are motivated by a couple of core things like, uh, novelty, interest, uh, urgency. And I think there's one more main one, but I forget right now, um, but those sort of things motivate us and so that urgency kicks in and it it feels like both panic and flow at the same time for a lot of us like we're at our most productive when we're panicking but like you said that's not the most self supportive thing in the world <laughs> um so i think um one of the best ways to sort of cope with that is um well I, I want to be clear that I am speaking from lived experience and I am currently working on a presentation that's due tomorrow. So <laughs> <laughs> let's just be honest here. I do not have this down to a science, um, mm-hmm. but I think I'm working on it today and not tomorrow an hour before it's due. And that's kind of huge mm-hmm. for me. Um, mm-hmm. So I think the things that help is reaching out and telling people when you're struggling. Um mm-hmm. I know uh, your husband's in school and everything. And when I was in school, I I did a bachelor's and I did a master's and I did a thesis for both. And um, my thesis for undergrad was horrible because I didn't reach out for help when I was started falling behind. And it got to the point mm-hmm. where I had to pull like six all-nighters and just write the whole thing in a week because I ran out of time. And... Um, my master's, it was starting to go the same way. And I noticed, and I was like, I'm not doing this again. <laughs> I'm just not. So I switched thesis advisors because my current thesis advisor is like, oh, I don't handhold grad students. And I'm like, great, then you're not the advisor for me. Um, and we yeah. just moved on. And um, basically I just said, I'm not doing this again. I want to be proud of this thesis. And that means mm-hmm. I have to work with my brain. And at the time I didn't know I was ADHD. I just knew that I struggled with deadlines and I struggled with self accountability. So I outsourced that accountability to professors and friends and, uh, my boyfriend at the time and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. So,
0: (laughs) well, I'm so interested in that because, well, one, we could go into a whole, like I do, I think we also moralize, um, procrastination and if that's good or bad. And, um, I think there's an element of if you can produce work you're proud of in that time, like who's to tell you when the right time is to do it. Um, I don't feel like it's my place to judge. But then the second half of that being, I'm interested in the way you speak to yourself, right, in that situation and how the, the letting yourself ask for a different advisor versus expecting yourself to operate under the pretext that this one advisor gave you. Like what's, What's right or good because there's so many different opinions about how you're supposed to be a person. And I think the Enneagram sheds a lot of light onto that. And it is, it's accommodation, it's not failure. And I think watching my husband, you know, I, I, someone I love so much who is so capable and so brilliant, feel like he's failing because he needs accommodation is, or not accepting accommodation because he feels like it would be a failure is probably more accurate, even. But like, It's like, oh, you're working harder than – he's working harder than everyone else to do what he thinks is bare minimum for himself. Does
1: that make sense? Oh, absolutely. Yes. I'm intimately familiar with this. I think (laughs) I felt that way for a long time, and then I just – I had a therapist who um, taught me – that the question i was asking the wrong questions i was asking is this normal or is this abnormal is this disordered or is this healthy all this stuff and she's like that's not working for you let's start asking is this helpful or is this unhelpful and that changed my life holy cow um mm-hmm. so basically that's how i've started approaching everything like and same thing with the thesis advisor basically i was like look this advisor is not helpful to me. I want my thesis to be really good. I need a different advisor. Like it just, that was the logical progression of my thoughts. I didn't let mm-hmm. myself get hung up in the shame of it because it was like, I, I just, I guess I let my advisor be wrong. That's the other yeah. thing I how to do is just, she, she was great. My old advisor, honestly, we like, she's an incredible poet because i went to school for poetry and everything she is an incredible poet an incredible professor um but she just wasn't the right fit for me and there's Mm -hmm. absolutely nothing wrong with that and i don't think she i don't think she was hurt that i switched advisors like and i wasn't hurt it was just a mutual like oh you have a different expectation than what i need and that's fine yep
0: and it's like a it's like a no one's bad or wrong it's just kind of like is an ill fit.
1: Yes, exactly. It's like trying on a pair of jeans that don't fit. Like, yeah, mm-hmm. you can shame yourself for gaining weight, or you can just say these don't fit. <laughs> like, yeah, these pants. You know are I the mean? wrong pants. Yeah, yeah, these are the wrong pants. It's no big deal. It's not the pants' fault. It's not my fault. They just don't fit. <laughs>
0: yeah. Um. So I know you have um so much information out there, but one of the things you have is the eleven types of neurodivergence. Can we talk a little bit about what that is and and people who are interested in learning more?
1: Absolutely. So I want to be clear, there are so many more types of neurodivergence than just 11, but I have put together a resource that has um, 11 types of neurodivergence listed. It actually has more types because it has lots of subtypes and everything in there. Um, but it includes links to reputable sources so that you can learn about things like... Um, Oh shoot, like FASD, um, fetal alcohol syndrome disorders mm-hmm. or um dyslexia or autism or, you know, personality disorders, all of the things we've been talking about. So that way you can just sort of explore and, you know, learn more about this really broad topic in a really approachable way.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Um,
0: is there anything lingering for you that you feel like I definitely want to make sure that this gets said before? we close?
1: I think just one quick thing about the Enneagram um, Mm -hmm. specifically, I think it's okay to be any Enneagram type when you're autistic, just so you know. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of things online about like every autistic person is a type five and every type five is autistic, which is, you know, fair. I'm sure that they are very, very well represented in the type fives. But, you know, as a type four, like I also feel like my autism and my type four kind of play off of each other in interesting ways. And so just, just a gentle reminder not to pigeonhole yourself. Um, (laughs) Yeah. yeah. I'm glad you said that because I do think
0: with my like limited expertise, like I, I, you know, I'm an expert in the Enneagram, not in neurodivergence, but I would say like, it's probably a, a relationship, like a, a combining, like how does your ADHD or your, you know, autism interact with your Enneagram type? So what stories does your Enneagram type tell you about your neurodivergence? Maybe a more interesting question.
1: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Love
0: that. Um, and how can we keep in touch for those at home who are like, I want to learn more from you. Where can we find you online?
1: Um, okay, so you can find me on TikTok. That is my most active platform at Meg Moxie, M-E-G-M-O-X-I-E. M-E-G-M-O-X-I-E. Uh, or if you prefer Instagram or if TikTok gets banned, uh, <laughs> you can hop <laughs> over to Instagram and that's at neurodivergent underscore magic.
0: Awesome. Megan, thank you so much for joining today. It was such a lovely conversation
1: I really enjoyed having you. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much for having me. This has been great.